0: Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by The Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and Yali with everyone. It's Sony Gatsum, and this is my final episode for the Smiley Connection podcast, at least for now. It's been quite a journey over the last few years in creating this project, watching it grow and being a part of a tremendous team. We've had the chance to speak with countless people and hear their stories of growth and hardship, of finding joy and peace, of finding their place in the world and everything in between. If you've been listening since the beginning, or even if you've just listened to one episode that resonated with you, I wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for taking the time. The podcast was created in hopes of inspiring you and helping you get through your own difficulties in life, whether professionally or personally. Every journey begins somewhere, and these stories are proof that you'll get where you need to be at your own pace. Anyway, there will still be more episodes to come, but with Reem Merchant at the helm, so please continue to look out for new episodes and listen when you can. With that said, let's move on to today's show with Ghalib Gutra, who is a Senior Environmental Protection Specialist for the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, also known as FEMA. Before that, Ghalib spent about seven years as an environmental specialist working with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration on a contractual basis. He also has a decade of experience working with the United States Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. But his career journey started way before that with a few other stops, including at the Aga Khan Development Network, where he was a part of focused humanitarian assistance. As you can probably tell by now, there's a common theme among Gaud's career path, and relatedly his life mission, to help others in any way he can.
1: I feel like I am a Khalifa on earth, like all humans. um, I believe that God created us to live on and take care of the earth and to take care of everybody else around us where we can. And that is uh, who I am.
0: Through his own journey of being an engaged citizen, taking care of the earth and the people around him, Galib has had some unique experiences. He's been on a jury for a medical malpractice lawsuit during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's also helped communities in Northern Pakistan with disaster relief. He's worked with salmon and orcas affected by climate change. Through it all, he's even dealt with personal hardships, like losing his hearing in his right ear, out of the blue one morning in 2012. His life experiences have influenced him to write two books, one on the judicial system and his time as juror number five, and the other, a collection of short stories that illuminate life lessons. Galib currently lives in Seattle with his wife and two children, but his life story, and this podcast episode, begins across the waters in Nairobi, Kenya, where Galib spent his childhood with his parents and older sister. And a quick disclaimer, this episode was recorded in the fall of 2021, so some details may have changed. Regardless, hope you enjoy.
1: So, uh, growing up in Kenya, I was a typical middle-income Indian family. Uh, growing up in Nairobi, uh, like many of the uh, Ismailis who migrated to the West started off with East African roots. And um, of course growing up you think you're no different from anybody else. Um, you're attending Jamaat Khanna, you're going to schools, things are just the way it is. And I, I had no idea, but my parents actually applied for U.S. green cards Uh, My mom's brother sponsored my mom. My mom's brother is a citizen. He sponsored my mom when I was in the first grade. Um, And 10 years later, in 87, we got a call from the U.S. embassy saying, please come for your interview. Yeah, so we got a call from the U.S. embassy. We went in for our interview, the same building that later got destroyed in the um, Al-Qaeda attacks. And we were given a year... We got our green cards and we were given a year to move to the U.S. So I finished my British O-levels. My sister, elder than me, did her A-levels. And we sold our house and we moved. Um, And so we moved to the U.S. I was 16 and I went straight to a high school. Now, this is really interesting. I was in a school in Nairobi. It was a private British school. There were 600 kids in the entire school. It was from first grade to the equivalent of 13th grade, so A-levels. And I moved to a high school, public high school in Indianapolis, there were 760 people in my graduating class. Uh, and it was a three-year high school, not even a four-year high school. Uh, and I was 16. Um, luckily, there were nine other international students that were on an exchange program. And so even though I wasn't officially an international student, I was able to at least relate to and kind of fit in with that group uh, to give myself a sense of identity. Um, there was no other way to get an identity in Indianapolis. We didn't have a Jamaat Khanna anywhere nearby. The closest to one was Fort Wayne, which was two and a half hours away. And uh, I lived there for, I finished my senior year before moving to Philadelphia. <laughs>
0: I'd love to ask just what was it like for you, you know, when you're 16 years old and and obviously you have teenagers, so, you know, there's a lot that goes on in a teenager's mind and having that backdrop in mind of being 16 years old, trying to figure out who you are in this world, but then also moving to the United States and dealing with just like this cultural shock, this this difference in like how the school systems worked and how large the school system was. uh, How did that impact you?
1: Uh, I think it was all a blur, actually. Um, I I was just focused on, you know, I'm here, I've got to graduate from high school, uh, I've got to get into college. I mean, that's why we moved to the U.S. primarily, so that we could get an education, because my parents couldn't afford to send us overseas uh, from Kenya. And uh, I kind of just, you know, went with the flow and tried things out and picked up from my mistakes and moved on. Like, for example, sports Uh, in Kenya, in our school in Kenya, we... um, it was much more casual right? you know, I could be on the soccer team and the tennis team at the same time. And we'd practice, I don't know, two, three times a week for an hour. It's not really a big deal. Whereas here I was like, Oh yeah, I'll play tennis. And suddenly I find that there's like, you know, six hours of practice a day. And I'm like, um, I can't do that. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, forget this. Let me switch to swimming. And then I told that I'm supposed to show up at four in the morning. I'm like, um, wait, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I don't have a car. I don't even know how to drive yet. Um, I'm still taking driving lessons. And so it's, it was much more intense here uh, in the U.S., uh, but I was still able to find, you know, a little niche. Like I joined the theater group in in school, and so we were able to put together a play. And I did a lot of crew, uh, sort of lighting and sound in Kenya. And so by finding that same niche here, I felt like I was able to fit in somewhere. And I'd already mentioned the other international students, uh, and I joined a Boy Scout troop because I was active in Boy Scouts in Kenya, and wanted to continue that. Again, it was very different here. But you know, there were a few good things. We went water rafting, we went up to the Smoky Mountains. Um, the meetings were not outdoors like they are in Kenya, but nonetheless, it, it gave you a sense of identity. And so it was very subconscious that I did all these things, but now in retrospect, I realized that I did them all so that I could have uh, a place where I could call home uh, outside of the Jamatkana space, uh, and also discover not necessarily consciously who I was, but subconsciously I was just packaging myself around things that I enjoyed and that I wanted to do to feel like I fitted in.
0: So when you immigrated at 16 years old, were there any other challenges that you faced either at that time in your life um, as an immigrant or even a couple of years later?
1: Well, English was a challenge. I had a British accent that no one understood when I was in Indianapolis. Um, Funnily enough, my sister went straight to Boston when we moved to the US at the same time, and she kept her Kenyan accent. I had to lose my Kenyan accent because I wanted to be understood. Um, So the challenge there was, uh, you know, you have to adapt. Um, If it's changing your accent, then change your accent, but it's better to be understood than it is to be not understood. Uh, I was blown away by just the choices at the grocery store. I mean, that was just insane. (laughs) We had maybe three choices of cereal going to a grocery store in Kenya. And here, there was like a whole aisle that went on for like half a mile. <laughs> um, and and the, the the choices and the availability of stuff, and this was even before the internet. So you could even shop, you know, there was no no such thing as online and cell phones and, and internet, but the the choices you have, I think were were a tremendous challenge. Uh, and you see that in the university system. Right now, uh, I was teaching 11th and 12th graders um, religious education last year, and just talking to some of them, they, or even thinking about my own kids now, they have so many choices that it's very difficult to make a decision, uh, especially one that you think can impact you for the rest of your life. And you don't want to be stuck doing something you don't want to do, which is why you see a lot of people changing, dramatically changing their careers. Um, The other challenges I think is, uh, you know, the absence of a community. Uh, Moving to Indianapolis, I did have the, the strong anchor of an Ismaili community. In Nairobi, my life grew around the uh, the Jamaat Khanna and its its larger space. So I was a Boy Scout Al Khan Boy Scout. I was um, going to the Al Khan uh, Club for sports. I was going to Jamaat Khanna and religious education classes. And here, everything is in Seattle. Everything is spread out, but in, in Indianapolis, there was none of it. Right. So I had to find the Boy Scout somewhere else and sports somewhere else, and uh, religious education didn't exist. Um, so that idea, at least for people who are th- moving to another location, if you have a choice of where you move to, uh, especially for high school seniors, I tell them, hey, look, if you have a choice, pick the place of the Jamaat Kana. If you don't want to go, you don't have to go, but if you want to go, it's there. If you move to a place where there isn't one and you decide two years later you want to go, you can't go. Um, so that that idea of of being able to anchor yourself in a community, I think is uh, is an important, challenge that I felt in Indianapolis and was able to compensate um, wherever I moved. And, and since I've moved around a lot, we've always had a, a rule of, okay, you go, you're only going to look at places where there's a Somali community. I I got shortlisted for a job in Hawaii, in Honolulu, uh, doing the same work I'm doing now, but for the federal government directly. And I turned it down because I'm like, I'm... I'd love to live in Hawaii, but I'm not moving to a place where there is no uh, Jama'at of. Luckily my kids said no way right up front. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a no brainer. So they
0: made the decision for you. <laughs> they, they, they
1: made the decision easier, yeah.
0: Anything that you learned from either your sister or your parents growing up that sort of became a part of who you are today, whether it informs your personality or your characteristic traits or your outlook on life?
1: Um, well, I think my... Um, m- I am definitely much more blunt and brusque, uh, and I—I I know my sister is too. But I don't know if we just learned from each other, or it just that happens to be a, a trait that we both have. My parents are the exact opposite; they're—they're they're the kindest, sweetest people who exist. But
0: that's crazy. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't know where we
1: got that from. Um, the interesting thing is, all four of us are left-handed, which is also pretty interesting. Um, but I think that growing up, my sister was uh, much more of an extrovert. You know, She made an effort to go out and make friends and I would sometimes tag along or I would indirectly learn from that. Um, and so when I moved to the US, I'm much more of an introvert. I was able to use the skills that she demonstrated uh, in order to to socialize, in order to get out of my little shell. And I think that's the one thing that I did pick up from her. Um, The other thing that she, I I never used to listen to music. I can't understand words and I'm actually half, now I'm deaf and completely deaf in one ear. I lost my hearing overnight one night. Um, So she used to listen to a lot of music. And so now at least when my kids are listening to music, I can appreciate it more. Um, (laughs) So that's the other thing I did pick up from her.
0: So now you mentioned um, that you lost your hearing in one year overnight. Uh, Would you be comfortable with kind of diving into that a little bit?
1: Absolutely, I think it's important for people to know that there are hidden disabilities that uh, many people have. And if you can't see them, you don't necessarily understand or appreciate them. My kids still don't quite get why I can't listen to music in the car and have a conversation. Um, And the reason is when you only have one ear working You're not able to filter out uh, background noises. You're not able to filter out and focus on filter out the music and focus on the conversation. Uh, The other disadvantage of uh, one ear is you can't locate sound, uh, which when they were younger was great because you could play hide and seek. They could giggle all they want, and I would have no idea where they are. But there's also a danger in that. You know, if you're in a grocery store, in a in a crowded area, and you get separated from your kids or your spouse or family, and someone calls your name, you don't know where they are. Um, I can spin around endlessly and 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 uh, and not know where people are. My phone never rings in the house because I don't want to panic and start looking for it when it starts ringing because I won't know where I put it down. Um, But those are sort of the side effects. Uh, For people who are listening who do have single-sided hearing loss, there is a Facebook group that's closed that provides amazing support. Uh, And whatever other disability you may have, there are support groups out there. And it's always good to hear how other people are coping with a particular thing. Or it's good to hear that you're not alone in the way you face challenges. Like I always wondered why I couldn't deal with this background noise thing until I read about it on a support group and then did some more research. Um, But uh, you probably want to know how it happened. I have no idea. I was in Karachi at a wedding. Uh, I went to sleep. The next morning I woke up and uh, the hearing was gone in one year. Um, It happens, uh, they say one in 50,000 people, one in 30,000 people. There's no real statistics out there because it's not a communicable disease. The CDC doesn't track it. Uh, I know at least four people who have single-sided hearing loss personally. Um, It can be caused by trauma or a a growth, a tumor, or other type of benign growth in the ear, but um, about 50% of the time or 30% of the time, it's just unknown. It just happens. Um, I told my kids that after I die, please have an autopsy done from my ear so that maybe somebody can learn something. Uh, But at this point, we don't know.
0: I feel like this really illustrates just the fact that you really don't know what people are going through. Like, I would have never known, right, that that you were dealing with this. How many years ago uh, did this happen?
1: It was actually uh, uh, 2012, July 1st, 2012. So we're coming up to the 10-year mark in a few months. Um, And it's, uh, yeah, it's been quite, uh, quite an experience.
0: Did it ever sort of like impact your personality at some point when you're kind of dealing with this and not being able to find a solution or an answer to why this happened to you?
1: I think I gave up pretty quickly on trying to look for an answer just because so many other people uh, acknowledge that there are no answers and going to many, many doctors. I went to, it happened in Karachi. I went to the doctor there. I went to a doctor in Kenya and then I flew straight to Seattle and within the first week and I've seen many doctors here. Um, So the sort of the why is gone. It's about the the challenges of dealing with it um, and the frustrations. Uh, It's definitely made me much more of an introvert um, because I, I was borderline EI on the Myers-Briggs before, and I'm way on the introvert side. Um, But uh, Zoom (laughs) has actually been quite a help because I do all my meetings on the computer. I can adjust the volume for what I want. I'm not in a conference room trying to listen to somebody on my bad side. Uh, And uh, I use Google Meets, which does great closed captioning live. Uh, In fact, once we go back to work, I'm actually gonna go take my laptop and do a one-person Google Meet so that I can still get the closed captioning uh, of a meeting that I'm sitting in in a conference room. But it's definitely something that you have to learn to cope with and do research uh, and learn about why your body and your mind are reacting the way that they do.
0: In the 1990s, Gallup eventually went off to the University of Pennsylvania, where he studied environmental engineering. And to broaden his perspective, he pursued a second degree in Islamic studies. He then became a citizen in 1994 graduated in 95, and then two years later, attended Tufts University in Massachusetts for his master's in environmental engineering and environmental policy.
1: So, you know, growing up, moving to the U.S. in 89, living in Indianapolis, uh, I decided, of course, like everybody else, I wanted to do computer science when I went to university. And so I I got to Penn. I was in the School uh, School of Engineering doing computer engineering. And it took me two years to realize this This is not working. Um, when you get a C in C plus, you realize that you're quite not cut out to do it. And I was stubborn uh, because my college advisor uh, at the time told me I would never be an engineer. And so I basically never went to see him again and decided I was gonna get an engineering degree. And I looked at the spectrum that Penn offered and sort of the most liberal one was systems engineering. And then I had to pick a concentration and there was a class on uh, environmental uh, systems that was a graduate level class or a senior level class that um, I was able to get into because it didn't have any prerequisites and I loved it. And so that's how I ended up landing on systems engineering because I wanted an engineering degree and then environmental engineering because I uh, it was, seemed to be the best fit for what I, was interested in doing. And so I dropped out of computer science. Uh, Going back to your question about the US system of education. The other thing I love is the fact that universities require these core distribution classes, you know, you have to take a language, you have to take a literature class and a psychology class regardless of what your major is. And someone had advised me on this before I started and I advise everybody to do the same thing is sort of use those distribution classes to create a second track for yourself. could be anything. For me, I was interested in Islamic studies. And so I thought, okay, if I'm gonna take a language, I'm gonna take Arabic. If I'm gonna take a literature class, I'm gonna take Middle Eastern literature. If I have to take a history class, I'm gonna take Middle, East, Middle Eastern history. And so just to fulfill those requirements, I ended up with enough classes for a minor in Islamic studies and then decided, you know what? I wanna do more than that. I was only 17 when I started. So I decided I'm going to do a two-degree 2, year, two degree program and split it over five years instead of four so I'm not killing myself. And that's how I ended up adding a second major for Islamic studies and Arabic. Um, then when I graduated, I applied to lots of jobs. Uh, I kind of have the throw the spaghetti on the wall approach when it comes to jobs. And unfortunately nothing stuck uh again this was really before you send resumes online and apply on online sites and so i ended up just going to work for an it company uh doing developing systems for environmental clients and environmental applications but it was still hardcore it and that was the two-year uh gap that i did and one year into that i'm like well i don't want to keep doing this which should have realized because I dropped computer science anyway so why would I want to be doing work in computers but at the end of the first year I realized I wanted to do something else and that's when I started exploring uh, graduate school um, to pick up another degree and to go uh, to become more marketable because I I felt like Undergraduate at the time was becoming the norm Uh, graduate school was something you need to do to set yourself apart today it's even stronger than that I mean a master's is just basic. Um, And so that's why I decided to uh, to go there and uh, I got a great opportunity at Tufts they gave me a full scholarship as a minority. Uh, And. I was in a program that only had 10 students. It was the environmental leadership program. And it was a combination of environmental engineering and environmental policy. Again, the fact that I couldn't stay in one lane. And that's how I ended up uh, at Tufts.
0: So kind of shifting gears back to what you do today with NOAA. First, what do you enjoy the most about what you do?
1: probably the fact that everything is multi-dimensional and extremely complicated um, so while uh, my undergraduate at UPenn was environmental it was technically systems engineering with an environmental concentration uh, the thing about that program back then at Penn is you could you could pick any concentration within systems it could be medical it could be mechanical it could be ke- chemical uh, it, it environmental in my case. And the idea is that your environment, uh, and if you think of climate change right now, it's probably at the forefront of everybody's mind. It's a system with inputs and outputs and what you do on one side affects something else. Um, People talk about solar energy and pushing solar, but the the manufacturing of solar cells is extremely damaging to the environment. People don't think about those things. So my job at NOAA, my job with NOAA consulting to NOAA is to look at environmental impact of fishery management decisions and Endangered Species Act decisions, which is kind of interesting because you're saying that, yes, um, the the fishery management uh, entities make a decision based on the stock assessments and based on the needs of the fishermen, but what are the other environmental impacts associated with that decision beyond the fish? Because generally they're looking out for the fish. Uh, And I think it's really interesting because what most people don't realize is that the federal, U.S. federal government has something called the National Environmental Policy Act which was passed in 1969, started in 1970. And it requires every federal agency, every federal agency, doesn't matter if it's USA, Department of Defense or NOAA, to evaluate the impact of its decision before it makes a decision. So it technically, if I'm buying paperclips, or if I'm building a highway or an airport, or if I'm authorizing fishermen to fish a certain number of salmon per year, those are all decisions. Or I'm giving a grant for public art; those are all decisions that the government is making and has to evaluate the environmental impact of before it makes that decision. Now, most of the times, the public hears about things like the, you know, the Dakota Pipeline or the wall or these big environmental impact statements for large airport projects or highway projects, and that's that's what people think about. They don't realize you have to do that analysis for every decision, every regulation. And when you're doing that, you have to look at everything. Uh, When I was working in on urban development projects in Boston, uh, for a company called Vanessa Hang and Bruslin we did uh, wind studies and shadow studies uh, for large buildings, because when you put up large buildings in urban environments, they either put shadows on green spaces or they create wind tunnels. So for example, the uh, the launch of the Smiley Center uh, in Houston uh, designs this week. It's interesting, everyone's watching the, the movie and looking at the architecture, and I'm seeing them, I'm like, wait, we're importing quarry stone from somewhere else what are the climate impacts associated with that shipping and um you know what are the wind effects of that building right next to an apartment building and what are the noise impacts from the highway into that balcony and what are the solar impacts the shade like it, it's just do you do this it was all crazy. the time <laughs> i was my my head explodes all the time it's it's really but that head blowing emoji is quite appropriate to my life um, <laughs> And, and so to get back to your question, it's like what I enjoy about things is that I can look at all pieces of the puzzle. The, the bigger picture is the things that people tend to ignore or forget about. And so um, that's just the way my brain works. Uh, unfortunately, it overanalyzes everything and it looks at uh, all of the different permutations and combinations that uh, can apply.
0: Do your kids ever think, oh, if we tell dad this, he's going to analyze you know, every little thing about it?
1: Oh, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. All the time. <laughs> Our dinner conversations are quite <laughs> interesting.
0: So on the flip side, what's something that's like, I guess the hardest thing about what you do?
1: Um, the hardest thing is probably accepting the fact that you can't change everything because of the bureaucracy, because of the way the government works, uh, because of the way people are entrenched in, in their um, attitudes and perceptions. Uh and sometimes it's really frustrating because you want to do the right thing, but you can't. Um, just uh, yesterday, I was recording for a, a conference in Canada by the Economic Planning Board, uh, Ignite. And we were talking about climate change and climate justice. And uh, and I mentioned environmental law and case law uh, earlier. There's one case that just sticks out to me in the, in the space of environmental justice right now uh, and climate justice. The fact that the uh, NOAA fisheries wanted to do the right thing back up in Alaska uh, a while ago, because they wanted to set aside a certain amount of cod to be processed on the island, because if that factory shut down on the island, uh, Alaskan islands are very remote, the entire community would suffer economically. And so they did a set aside for that island, but the industry sued and they lost. And the, and 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 that's a realization that yes, you want to do the right thing, the thing that you think is ethical, the thing that you think uh, is provides justice for underserved and uh, minority communities. But sometimes you're working within a larger legal framework, and you can't necessarily do the right thing. It's like affirmative action, right? You want to hire the somebody who's minority or low income, um, or disadvantaged, but you can't discriminate when you're making that decision. And if you do it as, yes, the classic Harvard Law School Asian students case, um, it's it's frustrating to be working within a system uh, by which you have to follow the rules. But if you don't, then you have anarchy.
0: For our listeners that might not know what this classic Harvard uh, law student case is, could you explain to us what that is? <laughs>
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, I'll try, but please, uh, please Google it. Uh, Basically, the uh, uh, Asian students sued Harvard University because they felt that they were uh, disempowered um, or marginalized because they had a higher standard for Asians. Harvard had a higher standard for Asian students than for non-Asian students. And Harvard's argument is basically, hey, we're trying to balance our student pool. And if we pick everybody based on one particular criteria, then we're going to get way too many Asian students in uh, the university um, system and I believe that so far the university has prevailed in all of the courts. Um, I don't know how far up it's going to get but it should be it should be kind of interesting to see.
0: Since my conversation with Galib, the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. The court will hear the case in its upcoming term with the decision expected either in spring or summer 2023. Now, speaking of court cases, I had mentioned earlier that Golub was a jury member at one point in his life, and that he wrote a book about it. It was October 2020, it was the first time Golub was ever on a jury, it was for a medical malpractice case, about wrongful death. He was juror number 5, and served on the 3-week civil case, about a 27-year-old man who died shortly after calling 911 because he couldn't breathe. The day before his death he was treated at a seattle area urgent care facility for shortness of breath and sent home unfortunately a conclusion couldn't be reached in the case and depending on how you look at it justice wasn't served for the young man's death gollib says how did that make you feel when you were going through this this period of your life? Um, just I mean, it's it's such a difficult thing to be. I've never been a part of a jury before. I've kind of skipped out on those things. But yeah, to be a part of a jury where someone's life was, was a part of it. What what does that do to you mentally?
1: It, it's really I mean, it's really difficult, I'll, I'll tell you, it's uh, at the beginning. You know, I felt like I really wanted to do this. Uh, I've been not escaping it, but it's never caught up with me over the past 20 years. I became a citizen in '94, and this was the first time I was actually in the right place at the right time. And of course, I heard all the horror stories of people wasting their time and not doing anything. But I, I locked out. I got in. We did a Zoom uh, screening because of COVID. I got selected, and I walked in and start. We started the trial, and. There's there's an incident in the book that I talk about, the fact that, uh, I don't know, two weeks in to the trial, I actually fainted uh, during one of the breaks. Uh, I was in the jury room and um, paramedics showed up and everything was fine. And eventually I saw a cardiologist and, you know, they said my heart is fine. It was just the way I was sitting and I pulled my blood in in my legs and got up too quickly. Um, It happens. But the next day, the judge is like, okay, you can recuse yourself. This is your exit. You can get out. And I'm like, hell no, I'm not getting out of here. I've invested two and a half weeks of my time and I wanna see an outcome. I mean, emotionally and intellectually uh, vested now in this process, after listening to hours and hours of expert testimony, I don't wanna just go home and and forget about it. I, I can't do that. Once I'm in, I'm in and I see it through the end. And unfortunately, we didn't get to a conclusion, you know, and, uh, and when we got the email uh, from the judge calling the whole thing off, I just, I, I grabbed my dog and we went out for a run and I tried to clear my head and literally I got half a mile down the road and the lawyer called me and I stopped to answer it. And I was just so upset. I said, look, I can't talk now. I, give me two days. I'll get back to you because it was disappointing. And not only was it disappointing for all of us who invested our time and effort into it, But I kept picturing this guy's mother. She sat through the whole trial. She gave up her job in New Hampshire as a teacher. She's sitting in Seattle, probably costing her an arm and a leg for the lawyers and for somewhere to stay and her lost job. Picture of her son on the table, the entire trial. She's sitting in the hallway during the breaks, eating snacks. I just felt sorry for her. A mother is not supposed to see their child go. And after investing all this time and effort, you're not supposed to end up uh, without justice.
0: And then, how does that impact you moving forward in life?
1: You realize that the the justice system doesn't necessarily give people what they expect. You know, I I work in environmental um, impact, and a lot of the stuff I do is based on environmental law, and I read a lot of law cases, especially from the court of appeals, and. You kind of have to understand that the law is written the way it is and the interpretations of it can't deviate from those particular prescriptions. Uh, And the the Court of Appeals is pretty good about saying, hey, you know, this is what the law says and this is what Congress intended. And therefore, even if it doesn't make sense, uh, it is what it is. And we can't change that. Uh, and so you understand even that applies to things like medical malpractice or um, uh, civil rights movements or things like that. It's, it's disappointing, but it's a fact of living in a society where the rules have been defined. And if you don't like the rules, you have to step up and try and change them uh, by voting, by running, uh, etc. But you can't sit and complain about it.
0: Gallup says he always wanted to write a series of three books in his life. So far, he's written two. We just talked about his second book, but his first book is a collection of short stories on his other life experiences outside of the courtroom.
1: This all started maybe 10 years ago when I was working for USAID and I wanted to write some in-depth analysis about my perspectives of USAID. And I had a, a lot of research done. Um, I had a draft or a very rough draft that I shared with a, a colleague of mine who's, a, who's an author. And she kind of encouraged me to split out some of the things that weren't relevant directly to that topic. Uh, and that's how I ended up, during COVID, writing the book called, a very short book, 75 pages only, um, How I Changed the World in My Own Unique Ways, which I pulled out five short stories of things that I'd done. I think given the the majority of listeners here, I think the, the first story in the book is probably the most relevant. I had done a month of volunteering with Focus Humanitarian Assistance when it first got created in 1995-96 uh, uh, in DC. And then I went off and did an internship in northern Pakistan to help uh, the Alkan Housing Board, which is now Alkan Agency for Habitat, uh, incorporate GIS into their planning uh at in at the village level and it was a one month internship i came back i went off to grad school i never thought about focus again and as i was graduating and interviewing with airport environmental consulting firms i got a message from somebody at focus i had no idea who it was and he said oh we're looking for someone to senior to start off a program in northern pakistan and i'm like well i think you've got the wrong guy because i'm not senior but let's give this a shot and uh, I turned down the airport environmental consulting jobs offers. Uh, I turned in my thesis and 10 days later, I'm sitting in a hotel in Islamabad uh, with the task of starting a natural disaster management program for the communities of Northern Pakistan, which is predominantly Ismaili very remote uh, cut off from the rest of Pakistan for about six months out of year, and really having to establish their own structures and systems to deal with uh, natural disasters. So I think that that experience, uh, the opportunity landed in my lap. Um, I was young, I wanted to you know, save the world. And so I decided to start off right there at the top of the world near the Himalayas and working for uh, other Ismailis predominantly in a space that was connected to environmental, also connected to my work in Islamic studies because I was looking at a different uh, set of traditions from the one I grew up with in uh, East Africa and the United States. So it was all in all a great uh, opportunity that fell in my lap and I decided to make the most out of it. And I left in 2001, but during COVID last year in 2020, I heard that the same program won the 2020 UN Gold Habitat Award. So I, I think that uh, the the program lives on um, and I must say that I'm pretty proud of all the all the work that people put into it when they were just given a little bit of a spark and that's what we can do. We can give the spark to people. Um, they can, uh, if they once they're empowered, they can go off and do amazing things
0: that's incredible. Super amazing. And I think very meaningful to be able to, to do something that has purpose in life um, and give back to the to the broader community. If other students or even other career professionals are interested in being involved in other um, just other opportunities, but they're afraid to or they think that they're not qualified to um, just any suggestions or tips on what they should do.
1: You know, it's the same as applying to universities. Right. You can't do it if you don't try. Uh, I I heard yesterday as an announcement for uh, primary teacher educators, uh, people who are willing to help, uh, people who are able to help train, help teachers uh, teach. Uh, I think every uh, religious education center in the world, not just in the U.S., is trying to get more teachers or more support staff. Um, If you're hesitant, start off by volunteering in just in the logistics and operations. Uh, Help uh, TA uh, a class. you can always find your niche uh, once you dive into it, but you can't if you stay at home. Uh, I I got into focus and I got that opportunity to go to Northern Pakistan simply because they were setting up a focus office in the Jamaat Khanna space in, in Washington, D.C. They actually took over a classroom that I had been teaching in. And I asked, hey, do you guys need any help? And they're like, yeah, can you help set up our computers and our network? And I'm like, sure, I can do that. You know, And that was the door that later led me to uh, open up and allowed me to go off to northern Pakistan and um, start that amazing program. But if I hadn't just stepped up and stepped in, then that opportunity would have never come my way.
0: I know we've, you've shared a lot of lessons in this conversation already, but any other takeaways that you'd like listeners to walk away with?
1: Gosh, and I think I've covered quite a lot, right? The ethics, uh, the faith, the sense of identity, the fact that we're all stewards or caliphs on uh, on God's earth uh, and that we're all here to do good uh, and that you can find that act in, in anything you do pretty much regardless of what your major career is. Uh, obviously, we've... Uh, I feel like you're never stuck in one place. I've probably changed my major and my careers and my jobs multiple times uh, trying to find the right thing. And, um, you know, do what your heart tells you to do and don't be shy.
0: But if there are people who don't really know what their passion is yet, any tips or suggestions for what they can do to find that passion?
1: Um, I would say try, try different things. There's so many opportunities out there. Um, so my kids go to a music school. It's it's a uh, they they take classes, private lessons at a at a school. We just happened to fall into it when we moved to the Seattle area. And the other day, just a few weeks ago, I got a I got a help from somebody I know, another parent there who's saying, Galib, since you're you know involved with government, can you please help out? Um, this has come up at the city's um, Council meeting is coming up next week, and it uh, it's complicated. And so I jump in with two feet, uh, just because I got asked to. And I realized that this one little nonprofit music school, uh, which has amazing programs I didn't even know about, it has over three hundred students I didn't know about. You know, I just knew about my my kids and their teachers. And then suddenly there's a task force of three parents, and we're helping the board. And I realized they need help with grant writing and they need help with understanding the city and they need help with finding space and they need help with accounting and they need help with marketing and they needed all kinds of help. And I'm looking out there and I'm like, you know, all these parents who work for Microsoft who send their kids to these schools and they can get extra, you know, um, uh, matching hours or things like that, each of them have a niche each of them have a particular expertise, whether you're a communications person or accounting person, or whether you're a research person or an activist or whatever it is. And so it doesn't matter what your particular interests are, find a local organization, they're gonna need your help. And then you start carving out and identifying what your strengths are. It's kind of like theater. You know, Theater in high school, I think is a great um, opportunity because you join a the theater group, you have no idea what you wanna do. Maybe you're the introvert that wants to become an extrovert. Or uh, you think that you're scared of uh, acting, but you end up doing backstage. And when you end up doing backstage, you end up pulling the curtain. You end up pulling the curtain and then you end up prompting the actor who forgets their lines because you've happened to listen to every single rehearsal uh, for the last three weeks and you know everybody's lines. And then suddenly somebody falls sick and you're asked to step in and you're like, sure, I can do that, I know all the lines. And boom, you found your little niche, uh, which you had no idea existed, but you only found it because you're able to step in and say, okay, I'm gonna join theater. And within this massive space, I'm gonna find my little niche.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. That was an awesome example. Um, Final question for you, what is next for you, either professionally or personally?
1: Um. Well, personally, is to get my kids into college. <laughs> um, uh, pretty difficult to do. Uh, and um, professionally, I I think long term is uh, an early retirement or a phase one retirement. Uh, once my kids go to college, uh, and then going out and maybe doing one more gig. Either with the AKDN overseas, or with the U.S. government U.S.AID overseas, or any other uh, international organization, because I've really enjoyed it. Of course, it depends upon health and you know family circumstances and things like that. But uh, at least that's the um, the exit strategy.
0: Well, I, I wish you good health, and you know, Gallup, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to learn more about Galib Ghatra or any of the resources he mentioned, check out the show notes. You can also connect with Galib on LinkedIn and please be sure to mention the podcast when reaching out. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps. We'd be incredibly grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cassidy. Re-Merchant, our new podcast host, helped to research for this episode. Marketing was carried out by our outgoing marketing lead, Samin Jawani and our new marketing lead, Amal Musa. Our cover art is designed by Shaquille Mohamed. Also, many thanks to Zoha Mohamed, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Dolly Lakani, our speaker advisor for the Smiley Connection. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.